We're reading from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Thank you, Stephen, for reading. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to Romans 14. We are continuing a series that we started, this is week number four, on the subject of conscience. We actually started the series by hearing a statement from one of the main characters in the Bible, actually two statements that I want to review for us today. So the first of those statements is what Paul said in Acts 23. It says that Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, which was the religious court. He looks at them and says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. And then he makes another statement in the next chapter, which is in Acts 24. Says something similar, but probably even takes it a little bit further. And that is, he says, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and man. A good conscience, a clear conscience before God and man. Powerful statements, which should make us ask, how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we could say that kind of thing, where we have a clear conscience before, before God and before each other? We've been trying to cover some of the basics when it comes to conscience. So that this subject is deep, and there's a lot of places we could go, so we're trying to at least cover some of the basics, some of the major things. We've said each week that conscience is this, something inside of us yet independent, So it certainly feels independent. It's like a voice or a sense or a consciousness where it is telling us our conscience is like speaking to us, but it's very much a part of us. And it is speaking to us, not just about anything, but matters of right and wrong. So it is giving direction and it is actually not just giving direction, but it is pushing us to do what is right. That's what the conscience is. How can we have that clear conscience? We've been asking, how can I have a a conscience that is cleansed? How can I have a conscience that is calibrated correctly so that when it fires and tells us this is right, this is wrong, we hear it and we respond to it? And I think there's another question to bring to this whole discussion of conscience, one very important question. And that is in light of everything else that we've looked at. How do you live with others whose consciences are formed differently than yours is? How do we live together if each of us has a conscience and it's formed in a certain way? How do we live together when our consciences are formed differently? It's a huge question. 
The Bible's not shy in giving us direction in that. So 1 Corinthians talks about this subject, especially in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Colossians talks about this subject. The books written to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, talk about this subject. Titus talks about this subject. So the Bible's speaking of this. Christians have to figure this out. But I actually think the best place to turn our attention is what Stephen just read in Romans 14. Paul writing to the church at Rome. I mean, we all understand group dynamics. So group dynamics would tell you that it would be much easier if to, to kind of answer some of these questions about how to get along. If everybody's kind of more or less the same, that would be much easier. If everybody's the same, if everybody grew up the same, if everybody kind of had the same family background, if everybody had the same cultural background, if everybody was of the same basic generation, if everybody had the same temperament, if everybody had the same religious background, if everybody had, I mean, all these things would tell us like this would be easier to work things out of and, and probably more areas of agreement if everybody would be just the same. But that wasn't Rome. That wasn't the church at Rome. It doesn't take much to think about exactly how different the congregation at Rome must have been. And in some ways, I think we could relate to that diversity, the difference in the congregation at Rome. So think about the church at Rome was started by Jewish Christians, most likely. People formed by Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and people shaped by the law, the instruction, the rules, the tabernacle, the priests, all of that instruction. But the church may have been started by Jewish Christians, but it grew through Gentile Christians who did not have the same background, whose faith wasn't shaped in the same way. They would have come from pagan backgrounds, all sorts of Roman gods, Greek gods, and goddesses if they had any religion at all. You can see the collision. I mean, that shapes you differently if you bring all of that into life together, a variety of backgrounds. You can imagine, too, a city like Rome that's the center of a world empire. It would draw the elite, the rich, the powerful. But then again, it would draw the other side of that, wouldn't it? It would draw those who were barely noticed, those who were stepped on, those who were used, those who were servants and slaves and... And as the gospel began to move forward in Rome, people that were of the elite group would have been brought into the church and people that were not elite at all where they barely even had a name would have been brought into it and they would have to figure out how do we live life together. Not to mention the center of the Roman Empire, Rome, certainly would have drawn people from all over the world, bringing all their customs and traditions. Think about how all that, they had to work it out just like we do. What are our convictions? What are our beliefs about how we should spend our money? How we should respond to family obligations? What will entertain us? How do we use technology? What exactly is truth? Should we, in every case in point, follow the rules? I mean, all these, all these different things. How do we work through this? Paul's going to work through this in Romans 14. And I want to at least, in some ways, like set the table for us because we are going to read through this chapter. But I want to set the table 
so that we, we know what to look for. This in some ways will be the, the utensils of it, kind of the way we prepare ourselves to look at this chapter and setting the table. If we're going to appreciate how do we live together, we, are going, we, can, we can live with others when we know, when we know what living before God requires. So again, as we get into Romans 14, you're going to see how critical this is. But if first we're going to figure out, like if we're going to figure out how we live together with our differences, priority is going to be what does living in the presence of Almighty God require? We do know and we should remember that God requires things of us. We are not our own. We live at his pleasure for his glory. We're meant to. We're meant to be shaped by his word, which does mean God wants more than half-hearted commitment to him. Sporadic obedience, occasionally responding to him if we feel bad enough. He wants more than that. What does living before God require of us? If we don't have that settled, we'll settle for a counterfeit. And this world we live in is really eager to offer us a counterfeit. If we don't have it settled of like we live before God, then really the counterfeit will be it's all about you. And you just make it up as you go. Which is going to say you can just make up your truth. And we hear that, don't we? We hear it in our culture. Well, that's your truth. And we need to speak our truth. This is where this is going to go. Whatever makes you feel good, you can bend beliefs, you can bend so-called truth in whatever way you would like, as long as you just tell yourself that you're okay and it all feels really good. There's no one really, really right or wrong, you just make it up as you go. You do you, you don't answer to anyone. And you just accept to everyone, 100% positive affirmation. That's the exact opposite of how this passage is going to guide us. But I think it's just important that we lay that out. We walk before God. This teaching is landing inside the church, people who have the Holy Spirit in us, God's word meant to shape us, prayerfully going to be, we're going to be coming to conclusions, all of us, over time. We're going to be thinking through things, and there are going to be places where we, we see like we've got to draw a line where we shouldn't cross that line. And there are going to be good lines to draw. There are going to be things we should believe in, convictions we should have, truth we should believe and submit to, things we should treasure, things we should practice, things we should avoid. What does living before God require? Living before God doesn't allow me to pick my own convictions based on my preference and what will make life easy for me. This has to be firmly in place because then we can go when we understand we live before God, then we can go to living with other people and recognize, okay, imagine I have a brother or sister in Christ that has read God's word, has prayerfully considered these things, is trying to please the Lord, walking through these things, and they come to different conclusions. It's not going to be about my preferences or theirs. It's not going to be about my comfort or theirs. It's starting with living before God as a priority. This is the way it kind of shakes out generally what I've seen in churches like ours is like we have a lot of believers that have come from a lot of different places, a lot of different backgrounds. And maybe you're in a class, maybe you're in a Sunday Bible study class or you're in a community group and someone says something and you realize like, I'm not, I'm not sure 
I share that conclusion. And maybe you just, maybe you're of the bold type and you express that or maybe you just hold back a little bit, but you go, like, I think I see that differently. Or maybe you are in someone's house or you observe the way they talk or whether, or what they do or decisions they've made, things they are doing, things they're not doing, things they've chosen not to participate in. And you begin to go, I think they're, they have a different view on some things of right and wrong than I do. And it seems like they love the Lord and they're reading the Bible and they, they're, they're submitting their lives to God, but they've come to different conclusions. I mean, this comes up, right? So I'm not going to surprise anybody to say that people who have like a strong faith in the Lord, walk with Jesus, come to different conclusions about things like parenting. So, so think about it. There are convictions you have. There are preferences you have. We know God tells us to raise our children in instruction and nurture and bring them up in the Lord. But what does that look like in your house? It, it may be different. You may have different convictions on like, I think this is the right thing to do. And another Christian may go, well, I think this is the right thing to do. And it may be different. If you think about the command to love your neighbor, and you think about all the ways you feel convicted you should obey that command, which may be very different than other people and how they feel convicted to obey that command. Both of you want to honor God, but it fleshes itself out differently. If we talked about what does Romans 13 that talks about being subject to governing authorities, what does that actually look like? How does that take shape? What should the relationship be between a Christian and government? And one Christian might say, I see it very clearly that we should, and they apply that in a certain way. And another Christian would say, actually, I feel very convinced that we should, and it's different or what about the commands, and there are several, that tell us not to look like the world? And one Christian says, you know, I can't do this because I don't want to look like the world, and I can't do that, and I should do this because I don't want to look like the world. And another Christian says, no, I think I'm not looking like the world. I'm actually trying to honor the Lord with this. And I think there's freedom. There's differences. So you can see that, and sometimes it's not just, sometimes it doesn't seem so clear, this or that. Sometimes it's almost like a scale, right? It's almost on a degree, like someone could be, it feels like they are more, more reckless and another person seems to be more fearful, more cautious. And it's like Christians draw the line in different spots. Sometimes it feels like it's too much or too little and there's a kind of a sliding scale of where you might draw it conscience-wise or someone might be like too tight or harsh and another person's way too lenient. Where we draw the lines so if we don't start with priority number one is we live before God, a lot of things are going to be bad downstream. We're going to go in not-so-helpful directions. But if we build on that, then we go to the next thing that Romans 14 is going to help us with, and that is I just, we don't just live before God. Also, what does walking in love look like? That walking in love is going to be said again and again in Scripture, here even in Romans 14, what does it actually look like that should govern things for us? What does that look like? What does it look like in our lives? When I begin to recognize that person loves Jesus and sees things very differently than I do or practices things very differently, I goes places, I just does things that I, I'm not sure I can do. What does walking in love look like? And then finally, another question 
an area that I, Romans 14 goes, and it's a, it's a challenging place, but a good place for us to go, and that is, in light of the first two, what should relatively be less important? So compared with living before God and walking in love, what takes the back seat? What should not be nearly as important? Dialed back. You know, it's not that you wouldn't have opinions on it. It's not that it's unimportant, but it's relatively less important. So we're kind of going to toggle between a few of those, kind of what it means to walk in love and what it means to that, for something to be relatively less important. And those are going to be some guiding markers for us. Let's get into Romans 14, all right? Thanks for letting me set the table. Romans 14 says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So do you see you have two different believers who are both convinced that they're trying to honor the Lord. One is described as weak in faith, not strong enough to recognize they are justified, accepted before the Lord, and they have freedom in a particular area. Jesus has done the work. They're weak in that area. But they're still like, they want to live before God. They're, one is choosing, like, I, I feel like my conscience gives me freedom to eat whatever I want to, and another says, I better hold back. And what does walking in love require? Walking in love looks like, in this case, welcoming. It means there's no distance and there's no gap just because someone doesn't share that exact opinion. They're, they're, you recognize, no, no, they're, they're pursuing the Lord. They're trying to honor the Lord. We're not pushing people away. We don't have a right to push people away like that. We don't have a right to treat them as if they're other. Scripture says walking in love is going to look like not a fake welcome, not a surface welcome, but deep care and deep love. Let them become part of you. You may desire to see them grow. You may think they... They would do well to grow in their freedom, but welcome them, accept them. Even if the progress is slow, receive them. That's what love means here. And we shouldn't assume this is easy because there's like a clause, there's a caveat there, right? Welcome them, but don't welcome them just so you can argue. Just so you can dispute your opinions. In other words, this is telling me, again, if we recognize this is what walking in love look, then looks like, then relatively less important is convincing them to where they see things from my view. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying, you know, every argument here doesn't have to be subtle. It's not some arm wrestling match of like, I'm going to give you this fact, this fact, this fact, and I win, and I win, and I'm right, and you're wrong. And man, that is motivating. It doesn't start out like that. It starts out like, I, we're just having a discussion here. And then you realize, well, wait a minute. No, no, it becomes very, very important that you see things my way. And maybe you think, Curtis, I never have to have my way. You may want to ask your family about that. They probably will give you, if they're not too scared, they may give you some honest feedback. Frankly, all of us like to have our way. And sometimes in arguments, it really, really matters that we're right. And if we drew up the formula, I think the formula would say something like this. Welcoming is greater than winning an argument. Like the goal is not well, I'll kind of pretend I welcome them, but only so we, I can straighten them out. Do you see something very, very different going on here? If someone is given a prayerful consideration, pull the throttle back and go, you're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. That's where we start here. Let's keep reading because more of this is going to become clear. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him 
And who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So you have fellow brothers and sisters who are trying to please the Lord. Walking in love looks like not judging or despising. Walking in love looks like you're not despising them. What's their problem? What's their deal? Don't they know they can? Don't they know that's not a big deal? You're not walking in ways where you just look down on them, despise them as if they're lesser than you are. And the person who sees someone exercising freedom doesn't judge, like, how could they? Any Christian ought to know. Any, any person that really loves Jesus should know. I mean, if you can sense they've tried to work this out, they're trying to honor the Lord, then there's no place for despising or judging. Actually, no, the opposite is we welcome, and we welcome one reason in this passage says, because God has welcomed you. God is the great welcomer. And if God welcomes, who are we to go? Yeah, I know God does, but I don't. I mean, who, who do we think we are? And in kind of that, who do we think we are, another layer of that, in this passage, Romans 14 would say, you're not their master. You're not, you're not their boss, if that analogy helps a little bit more. So it would be weird for someone to come from the Midwest and land in your place of employment and they have no relationship to your business, they're not even in your field and they go, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do and you go, no you're not because you don't, you don't have that right, you don't have that authority. And do we have the right to put ourselves as Lord over someone's conscience and go, this is the only way you will do this or see this. Who are you to be the boss of another? Good Christians may differ and we aren't the master. Picking up that theme of like being the master or being the Lord. Verse 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. And each one, hear this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind so that the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God even while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Why is this? Because we live before God. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. To this end, Christ died and lived again so that he would be Lord both of the dead and the living. So again, re-emphasizing verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother. Why do you despise your brother? Because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. God is the only judge. God is the only one who can say not guilty and it stand eternally. God is the only one who can justify us and make us acceptable, ultimately. So all that just has a way of humbling us when we have Christians coming to different conclusions. This is shaping how we live together in the body of Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. If you were doing it, don't do that anymore. Like, change. Change. And that change may take a while, but let's not do that anymore. Let's not be a congregation that judges others, but rather 
Here's an alternative. Let us decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul says this thing, and let's mark it. Like Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. On the authority of Jesus, I know, I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, don't destroy the one whom, for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So we walk in love, which means we don't pass judgment and we don't despise, but this takes it even further. We walk in love, which means we intentionally avoid harming each other. It's not enough for us to just go, okay, I'm not going to judge anybody. It means we go the extra mile, that we look out for each other so much to the the case where we recognize this may cause someone to struggle and I'd be willing to care for them I'm going to do all that I can to avoid harming them. If this is going to be a snare, if this is going to be an obstacle, if this is going to cause them grief, if this is going to cause them all sorts of conscience conscience dilemmas, we're going to be careful of that. We're going to make proactive decisions. I think for anybody who's a mature Christian, anybody who's a, a leader, anybody who teaches God's word, you take this into account that others who are weak or maybe new Christians are looking to you? Do you intentionally avoid harming their faith? Verse 14 says something so interesting. It says that Paul says, I could eat. I have freedom to eat anything. But for caring for others, I'm going to pull back which tells me something else in the relatively less important category is this, completely exercising my freedom. So that is saying, yes, it's saying there are things that maybe you have all the freedom in the world to do, but more important than you just doing what you want to do is thinking about how you might serve others. So you pull back on your freedom. Again, I want to talk to especially mature Christians and say, are, are there areas where we pull back, where, yes, I have the freedom to do that. Before the Lord, I think I have the freedom and right to do that. But so that I can serve more people, I'm going to limit my freedom. Or so I can serve more people, I'm going to be flexible. So when I'm in certain groups, and it's not meant to be two-faced, it's meant to be serving them in certain groups, I may limit my freedom because I don't want to destroy their faith. They're still processing things. They're, they're still working through things. So I'm flexible enough in some settings to hold back my freedom and not judge them when in other places, other settings, I might be able to exercise it. This is what this is pushing. There's something more important at stake than just getting our way. Saying, well, I, I don't see a problem with it. Quoting a verse and using it as a club. Like this is telling us that the work of God in people's lives, is, it, it's worth more than that. One more expansion of this. Look at verse 17. If we, if we missed it the first go around, like the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when you make those intentional decisions not to harm another's faith, you're serving Christ. It's acceptable to God and approved by men. 
So if you want to know what we can pursue, let us pursue this. What makes for peace? What it makes for mutual upbuilding? Do not for the sake of food, eating, drinking. We could probably put a lot of other things in that category. Don't for that sake destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat, drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Relatively less important. I don't, I don't know any other way to say it, but relatively less important are eating and drinking types of things. Things where you may have a conviction, you may have an opinion, you may be settled, fully convinced in your mind. There may be some things, you know what? I don't do this. We don't do this. I see things this way. I think it would be best for Christians to do this. And you have that, and, and you can own that, and you can be settled on that, and it's faith-informed, but, but they fall on a very different priority level because you know that righteousness and joy and peace matters more than maybe a settled opinion that you have on certain areas where, again, you know someone is, loves Jesus and is trying to please him. If we wrote, wrote out the formula, it'd be the work of God is greater than food. Well, of course it is. Things like righteousness, being in right standing before God, will matter for eternity. Things like peace, living in harmony, will matter for eternity. Things like joy, being satisfied, delighting in him. So what is walking in love? If that's relatively less important is all these things that maybe seem so important. If we say, no, that is not as important. That is not as important as righteousness and joy and peace. Then walking in love means we pursue harmony. We're not quick to just step away and pretend it doesn't matter. We want harmony. And this has to speak volumes in a world that magnifies difference that magnifies even the, the minute difference and blows it up and says, you must be you know, the worst human being ever if you hold that opinion. I mean, this is a world that just loves conflict and loves to feed it and feeds off of it. And people like make a ton of money off of conflict. How different it would be if when people came into the body of Christ and they looked around like you can look around and see, I don't think everybody here would have the same opinion about everything. I don't think everybody would share the same background. I don't think everybody was raised the same way. I don't think everybody would have the same family structure. But they seem to love each other deeply. It seems like they pursue harmony. They find ways to agree, even if they're convicted on some things that do matter to them. Pursuing what makes for peace, not spreading gossip, not undermining another person, not talking bad about them. But not just pursuing harmony, but pursuing what makes each other grow. The word in the English Standard Version that we read was mutual upbuilding, like what makes us grow, pursuing that. We're not neutral on that. Pursuing in community what is going to mutually cause us to grow. It's something, and I don't mean to be silly, but if, if God wanted you to grow, just kind of so independent, he probably would have given you a self-paced workbook and said, when you get done with lesson one, go to lesson two and do it on your own time in your own way. God had something very, very different for you and me. He had in mind we would do this in community. 
And we do this probably irritating each other and coming to different conclusions at times, having to live with faults and flaws of other people, having to work out a changing our mind at times, settling harder in other areas. He, he knew, but all of that would be we could pursue each other like you grow in the Lord and I grow in the Lord. It's not at the expense of one or the other. This is the way God has. We get community, not just a workbook and a wish of good luck. We go deeper into life together which means the last few verses feels like the stakes are raised in verse 22. So the faith that you have, the faith that you have, you keep between yourself and God, like nurture that relationship in close communion with you and God. And blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Like your conscience is a serious deal and you're blessed if it's not telling you, you did wrong, you did wrong, you did wrong, you did wrong. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Walking with God, growing and understanding so that your conscience is guarded and dialed in so that maybe like Paul, you would say, by God's grace, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience so that you might say like Paul, I am striving to have a clear conscience before God and men. So I want to leave you with a couple questions and then I'm going to pray. The first question is we've talked about conscience a lot. I want to land it with this. Like what steps do you need to take so that you will have a clear conscience? In light of whatever is not of faith is sin, what steps do you need to take so that you would have a clear conscience. What steps of faith I should add? What, what sins do you need to confess so that your conscience could be clear, so that you have taken it to Jesus? Not as a quick fix, but so that you have dealt with this. What, re what repentance needs to be in your heart? What other person who you have wronged or you think you might have wronged, what conversation do you need to pursue? What place in Scripture do you need to study? Because as it stands right now, you're not sure if you should or shouldn't do this. And you need to study and prayerfully consider, is this right? What steps do you need to take so that you could have a clear conscience? What conversations do you need to have with another believer? What, what practices do you need to stop because they always grieve your conscience? And if you're thinking of things, then how long is it going to be before you take that first step? How much longer does your conscience have to be like sit under this where it is, where it's killing you, where it's, it's bothering you? Where will you come out into the light or, or ask for help or seek God's word until you get like some, some, something that resolves things in your heart? What steps do you need to take so that you could have a clear conscience? And then certainly the subject of today. How can you walk in love with other believers? It doesn't seem like in Romans 14 it's passive. It seems like there's proactive steps like you welcome, you receive. You pursue what builds others up. You choose not to despise. You don't put harm in others' way. So where do you need to look at your decisions? Do you need to revisit some of those? 
where do you need to get to know another person? And get to know exactly what makes them tick. What, what shaped their views of right and wrong? Where could you grow in your respect? Even though that person has come to a different conclusion, you grow in your respect of them because it's like they, they have seen things in God's word and understand things maybe about the Holy Spirit, about faithfulness to the Lord, about loyalty, about obedience, about persevering, that you've, you've never even like scratched the surface on. Where could you learn? Where could we learn to walk in love? It will involve closer proximity. Where could you be more deeply committed to another person's spiritual good, where it's not just like you occupy a seat on a Sunday and that's all there is to it. Where could, where could you go deeper in that commitment of like, you're going to matter and I'm going to be invested. I obviously can't invest in everybody, but there are a handful of people that I'm going to be invested in their spiritual lives, even if we're not in the same place on everything. I'd love for us to be at the place with Paul to say, I have a good conscience, I have a clear conscience, and that is what I'm going to pray for. And then Michaela will come up and dismiss us. Let me pray for us today, all right? Father, you give us so much in your word, and over the last several weeks, it has been a lot to think about and a lot to process. And the stakes seem high in that we're talking about what is right and what's wrong. So I pray for a church to have clear, cleansed consciences before you. I pray that we would do the hard work of discerning truth, discerning what's right and what's wrong. And then we would operate in obedience and responsiveness to you. I pray that as we live out our faith, we come from so many different nationalities, so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences, so many different teachings uh, and theological backgrounds, I pray that you would draw us closer and closer together, not because we don't value truth, but because we value it walking and living before you more than we ever have. So Lord, all this is only possible if you give us help and show us the way. So we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.